It is a sort of tradition here at Anthem that in August, as everyone's kind of coming back into town, that we take two weeks uh, in the past, usually to cover our mission and our vision. And so, one, we do this because students, you're beginning to come back in town, so welcome. It's exciting to see a lot of your faces back. And then also, it's a time of year when families, we start, uh, we're consistently around and back in town. And so this is a time when we usually, uh, with a lot of new faces and folks moving in and folks returning, remind ourselves of our mission and vision as a church. Uh, but here's the thing. As, as I was coming to these two weeks, uh, I had over and over again just this sense from God to say, yes, the mission and vision, you'll make that clear throughout the fall and, and unpack what that looks like. But right now, I want to speak a specific word, press on a specific reality with Anthem. As we're going into the fall, this is the time of year where everyone's in transition. This is also the time it gets crazy busy. I know I start coaching soccer games for my kids this week. I start having all kinds of back-to-school meetings. Everything kind of gets stirred up, and the city comes alive. Folks move in. Transitions happen. New coworkers take the desk next to you and the cubicle next to you. You, you come into the classroom and meet new student, students there. This is the time when that is happening, and it also means it is a time of year when God calls his people to turn to others and to share about him. It's a time of year when we realize if we're willing to have the perspective that none of us is right now all of a sudden sitting here in Como for the first time on accident. That the individuals who have moved in and are around us, the new neighbors, the new coworkers, the new uh, uh, peers in our major, whoever it is, whoever we're sitting next to at a football game, they are not there by accident. But God has put them there on purpose so that we might make him known. In other words, this is an intentional time of year where we are to be making known Jesus. But here's the thing, as we do that and have that perspective, there is something very important that we would take hold of, and it's what we're going to look at today and we're going to look at next week, which is the power of God. The power of God. Uh, this really struck me a few weeks ago. My wife and I, right when we were ending out, we, we, uh, I was able to go on a sabbatical uh, this summer. Last week was my first week back. And uh, right before, we, we went to Kansas City for a few days, and, and we got to go see Oppenheimer because it's three hours long. We have three children. We're like, we would never be able to see this unless we don't have any children with us, right? So we finally found time. We go, and it's supposed to be the biggest screen in America, like, like not IMAX, but the biggest screen in America. And, and we go, and we watch it, and, and all the previews, come on, I love seeing the previews. But it was just like after preview after preview, it was kind of like you could just feel from the crowd, and even I felt it where it was kind of like boring, like why can't they tell stories anymore, right? Like everyone's kind of like quibbling and just like yawn, like, and then all of a sudden, the last preview is for, if you don't know, the next installment of The Exorcist, right? And so it comes on no warning, right? Everything's kind of been like Marvel movies, like, okay, the universe blew up again, big deal, right? And then you, you move on to this, this next one where it's like these two little girls, and they're like, you know, going to school, and you're like, oh, this is kind of cute, okay, whatever. And then the next thing you know, it's like, you know, I'm not here anymore, daddy, right? Like, and these two girls are possessed, and it's just freaking me out. I'm, I'm a do- I have two daughters. So I'm watching this, like, horrified by this movie. And, and I'm thinking about demonic possession and how crazy this is. And you have fire and you have, like, blood and you have all this. Never, don't watch it if you haven't seen it. Not pastorally recommended. But it ends, and I'm just sitting there stunned as this thing ends. Like, I've just been 
Like, whatever has now happened to me has, I can't turn back the clock. And now, and I'm also thinking to myself, two things. One, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sleeping for a week. One. And the second thing I'm, I'm thinking, because all of a sudden around me, though, this, this crowd that had been silent, this crowd that had been kind of like, yawn, it comes to life. There's this buzz throughout the crowd. It's like a wave that moves throughout. Where all of a sudden, it's like we're all shocked, and then everyone goes, all right, people start applauding. Somebody, some guy behind me is like, let's go, right? Like everyone's super excited about this movie. And here's the thing. There's all this excitement. There's all this anticipation. And well, you know, I'm all for a good movie. But it seemed to be in that moment, the response of the crowd was because what hit me was it seems like we assume that whole thing is just a story that sometimes we tell ourselves to give ourselves a little entertainment. Of course, for all of the kind of Hollywood sensationalizing that they make out of it, demon possession, the reality of Satan at work in the world, it's sensationalized there. But the reality is what Jesus tells us in this passage today is that it's real. It's not just a story that we tell ourselves. Jesus tells us in this passage that that is what we are up against. And that apart from him and God's power, the reality of our life is that we will be possessed in one sense or another. In fact, it's not a matter of if, but who will possess you? The spirit of Christ or the spirit of Satan, as we see here? This passage captures the need for the confidence and the power of God. Because here's the thing. The context here is that Jesus is going to send out his disciples. And this happens in all three of the synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels. He sends them out to do ministry, to tell people about himself, and there is some way in which they come back and they say, we're completely ineffectual, Jesus. We're unable to do it. We're unable to cast out the demons. We're unable to convince people. They're powerless. In this passage, it says in the end that they... They can't heal the boy and cast out the demon, and Jesus does what we just heard read. And then Jesus comes and says, you can't do this except by prayer. And, and here's the thing. The question is, why couldn't they do it? And there's an old uh, Welsh preacher. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you ever get a chance to listen, they, they have recordings of some of his sermons, and he's a fascinating Welsh preacher. You have to listen to him. Uh, but he preached on this passage, and he said, do you, do you know why they couldn't cast out the demon? Because the demon was in too deep. And one of the things that we'll find, and we could go into all the cultural things, all the societal things, all the trends in churches and faith and belief and whatnot, and we, we could go into all those things. And a lot of times here at Anthem, we dissect those things, we go into them, we look over them, and we talk about them. But here's the thing at the end of the day, the thing we will feel, the reason why we are focusing specifically on the power of God and what it has to say to us being sent out to make the gospel known is that as we go out, we will find that probably our cuteness, our cleverness, our ministry strategies, and our programs, and whatnot, and our insights, and our arguments, and whatever it might be, will not be enough. 
that ultimately the demon is in too deep. That ultimately there's something that must come only from God himself and can only come from God himself. That we must cry out to him for. For him to move with his power. And what we see in this passage is like we read that it calls for prayer. And so we're going to start there. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Lord, we, we fall asleep and we forget when we pull back the veil what's really there. And Lord, as this comes probably like a, uh, also like a small implosion right in the middle of just getting together our schedules and meeting with, with individuals and setting up the fall and, and running from here to there and buying school supplies and all the things that we need to do in the midst of the busyness. But Lord, also as we're encountering those around us, having intentionality, having eyes that are open to realize, Lord, you've placed them in our life. And if we are to speak, we need to have confidence that you go before us and you come with power. And so, Lord, would you give us eyes to see those you've placed in our life? And, Spirit, would you give us confidence in your power? Give us compassion, not a self-righteous spirit, but a spirit of compassion. And would you lead us and make us intentional people? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, seeing Jesus for who he is. We're going to look at first, how do we see Jesus for who he is? Because we see that here in this passage right before the part that we read. And then we're going to look at seeing Satan for who he is and the reality of Satan in the world. And we're going to look lastly at the reality of the power of God and what it is. Uh, Jesus and, and who he is. Uh, I, I remember when I was an undergrad, this, this passage, uh, I went to Ohio State, the Ohio State University, and, uh, and I was in a history class. Um, I'd actually just become really a Christian, and, and uh, so it was actually kind of a, a, a secular university history class, and so I actually had a, a history professor who was first century Christianity, he had written the book on like medieval Christianity, so he was a pretty well-known uh, Christian historian, and, and he was in this lecture, we were looking at this passage, and he read, and this is Mark 9, Mark 9, 1, he read Mark 9, 1, and Jesus said to them, to the disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And he read that and he said, there's conclusive proof that what the Bible says and it has contradictions in it that never happened because those 12 disciples were never around when Jesus would come again in his second coming. And everyone went, case closed, right? And I remember sitting there looking at it and I went, you know, like freshmen, like I don't, I don't really, I'm new to this whole thing. But I've been trying to read the Bible lately, and I noticed something in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all the synoptics, that every single time after Jesus says this to his disciples, the very next verse, it goes into the transfiguration. So I said, could it be that what Jesus is referring to, you will see my kingdom come with power, is actually not the second coming, but it's actually the transfiguration, which comes right after that saying in every single gospel. I remember, right? <laughs> I was like, I got him. I was like, yes. Uh, because the thing is, it's right there, and Jesus is telling us why the transfiguration is included. 
Because saying the transfiguration, it's a passage that we probably all have heard of, but it's a passage we don't really think about much. And what is the significance of this passage? The significance of the transfiguration, which is right before then in every gospel, in every synoptic gospel, Jesus sending out his disciples, is he says, let me give you a picture of who I am, what I'm doing, and what I am bringing to this world to counteract the prince of this world so that you might go out with the confidence and the power of who I am and what I've done and what I bring. So when we see who Jesus is, we look at the transfiguration. And this is what it says in verse 2. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. It means probably lifted up and, and held up, and then it describes it. It says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, there's a mountain, and they go up the mountain, and Jesus is on the mountain. He's lifted up, and then it it goes on to say then in in verse 7, it says, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. What's going on here? What Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, there was a time when God throughout history in this place called Mount Zion had built a temple. And in the Psalms and in all the Proverbs and in all the Old Testament literature, it speaks of God meeting heaven, heaven coming down and meeting earth where the mountain of the Lord comes up. And that's where heaven and earth meet. And what Jesus is doing is he says, let's go up a different mountain. Let's go up a mountain and let's go up to the top of that mountain and instead finding a temple and instead just hoping that through this temple somehow you will encounter the God of the universe. He says, you will find that I'm the one lifted up. I'm the one who bridges heaven and earth. And it's going to ironically be because I was lifted up on a cross and I'm going to die for your sins. This is why Moses and Elijah are saying that, right? You're like all of a sudden like Moses and Elijah there. Don't worry about the like, were they dead? Are they there? What happens there? I don't know. But they're there. And so why them though? Why these characters? Because Moses, how do you ascend the hill of the Lord? How do you ascend to the presence of God? Well, he he comes down from the mountain and gives him the law. He says, you serve a holy God. You break this law, you die. Problem, right? Jesus, though, is lifted up, and he's made radiant white, and he says, when I'm lifted up, I will become the sacrifice that will die for your sins. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. But also then Elijah comes. Who's Elijah? Elijah is the one who later on in the Old Testament is going to become the prophet who makes known Israel. Listen, return, follow God's law, return to him, repent of your sin. And then they go and they make Jesus known to the nations. That's Elijah's whole ministry. So Moses represents you go up the mountain where the law of God has said you're essentially condemned because of your sin. This is a holy God. How could you be in his presence? And Elijah comes along and says, how? Because there's a, prop, there's a, there's a savior who's coming and this is him. The whole of the Bible is how will God come with his power? How will he come with his presence? This is why it says that Jesus, it makes everything white and radiant, pure, unlike anything else in this world. The kingdom of God is breaking in and it brings freedom. It brings healing. It sets the captives free. In other words, for all their good, for us, for those around us, while there are many good things that we can do, there are many, there are social, economic programs, vacations, education, relief programs, 
happy hours, good books, right? There are all kinds of good things that we can pursue, and we can provide for ourselves and others around us. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, the ultimate need that you need in this world, what you're searching for, is found only in me. If you try to find a heaven on earth in anything other than me, you try to deal with your guilt, if you try to deal with your shame, if you try to clean yourself up, bury the past, whatever it is, if you try to go about that without me, at best it'll be fleeting and at worst it'll just be a mirage you run after your whole life. The reason why I highlight this portion first is very simple. Do you see that this is the reality of the world we live in. That for everyone in this world, it's either that they know Jesus, they know the reality of him being lifted up, him bridging heaven and earth, him giving life, freedom. He's kind of pulling back the veil and he's saying, do you see that this is the reality that I brought? And as my people, you're called to proclaim this. I know for me, in the midst of the busyness, it's just important to pause and go, do I see that that is the power and that is the, the greatness, that is the goodness that Christ has called us to and he calls those around us, or calls us to tell those around us about. So that's who Jesus is. That's a quick glance at that passage and a quick glance at who Jesus is and what he brings. But then the reason why Jesus wants us to have a vision of that call is because the reality is when we follow him, we are going to encounter something. We may see his goodness, we may see his kingdom, but the question then becomes, do we see his power? Because there's another power that we're in the midst of. So seeing Satan for who he is, Look at verses 14 to 18. After the transfiguration, it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, so there's a buzz here. Everyone's kind of gathering around and arguing over what's going on. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. This is Jesus. They ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So you have this dad who has this child, and it says down, and I think it's verse 22, where it says that he's been even thrown into the fire and into water to, to destroy him. The spirit will do this to him. Can you imagine as a parent if this was happening since your child was small and he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, can you do anything? Your disciples couldn't do anything. Before we talk about why the disciples were ineffective, we have to emphasize here what Satan does. This is a picture of Satan's goal for us. Satan seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And here's the thing. Satan is real. He's not a Hollywood construct. He's also not the caricature that you see in children's cartoons. 
And he does it. He destroys. He controls. He grips through possession of many forms. Here it's explicit demonic possession. A spirit of Satan has entered this boy and is controlling him, kind of controlling him like a puppet. What we often think of it, but here's the thing. It's, it's often different in our day, but it just looks different. I read this, I think, last spring. There was some, I can't remember what the topic was, but this is something from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, a, it's a great passage, the Screwtape Letters, if you've never read it. It's essentially, it's a very interesting idea where it's letters from an, un, like an older demon who's apprenticing, uh, mentoring a younger demon. And he's writing him letters uh, in order to coach him on how to, essentially, uh, the idea is there's a demon assigned to each person. And so he's coaching that demon on how to kind of steer that person away from God. And, and, and it's very interesting because Lewis is in this time around the 1950s when he's writing this, and he's saying, as modern people, we tend to think because we don't see this manifestation like you do in the first century here, that that means that Satan's not anywhere. But, but C.S. Lewis says, what if that's actually uh, the very tactic of Satan to make you think he doesn't exist at all? This is what the older demon says to the mentor. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark the patients, the person they're assigned to. The fact that devils are predominantly cosmic, comic figures in a modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to rise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something. Sorry, I turned off my iPad. This is what happens when I try to move from paper to an iPad. I just turned it off. <laughs> my iPad is possessed now. It is not. There we go. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. See, here's the thing. He says, how about in the modern world, maybe it's the fact that actually you just possess them in a different way. Entice and lure them with desires, comforts. Don't make it actually explicit. Because here's the thing. If we saw all over the place the demonic possessions like you see in the Exodus, and we all know about the stories of these different things, and if you don't know around the country, like even the Catholic Church actually has priests that are specifically around the country who full-time do exorcisms. Because it does happen. But at the same time, if it was happening on every street corner, then everyone would be like, seems like there's actually something going on there, right? It's much easier to do it in more subtle ways. But the issue is that those other ways are no less controlling and possessive and gripping. This is why we use language in our day to describe our inability to break through to someone as them being possessed or gripped by an ideology. Them being gripped and possessed by comforts, by pleasure, or it could be rage. In the same way, it seems... And by the way, I want to say this, this also can be us just as well as them out there. We as the church, when we read these passages, should always look in the mirror. But it seems at times the possession, the gripping, is so powerful. You're completely incapable of breaking through. The demon is in too deep. And the cleverness and the cuteness and the strategies and the arguments seems to be completely ineffectual. 
Now we get a picture of what this possession looks like in the boy, but I think there are things that we could drive for how it can look in our lives as well. For those around us, in verse 18, it says, it seizes him. It says, first it makes him mute, and it seizes him, and it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So the boy may have become mute where he couldn't talk, but in our day, perhaps it's that we don't have or know any truth to proclaim, to live by. There's kind of just like this aimlessness and shutting down, perhaps even to this place of depression because there's just no purpose in life. There's almost no presence in the world, just this muteness. It throws them down. It could look like in our day that possession from ideology or lies that Satan gives us can literally throw down all of the things of our life, just smashing our marriages, smashing our relationships, smashing our careers, smashing any of the graces and blessings that God has built up in our life, just throwing it down again and again. Have you ever been there? Do you know anyone who's in that place? Foams and grinds their teeth. This grinding of teeth is an image throughout Scripture where it's just kind of this anxiety, it's anger, it's this bitterness. No, no, just grinding because you don't know where to go with it. No relief. And they're rigid, frozen, ineffective, purposeless. Later, it says, kind of summarizing, it says even cast them into fire and into water. It's ultimately when Satan grips our lives... He drives us with half-truths. He drives us in many ways. He, well, I'll come back to it. But often he's the accuser. He drives us. That's what Satan means in Hebrew. It means the accuser. And that's why it's his name, because God gives grace and healing and forgiveness. And Satan wraps our past around our heart like a lasso. And the guilt and shame that comes with it and just pulls us along like a marionette. So it says that it casts him in the fire and into water, and Satan uses our guilt, he uses our shame to drive our lives and to get us to bind to these half-truths and to just try to eke out an existence, any sense of significance, any sense of freedom. And the whole time what it does is it just turns us over to more and more destructive behaviors. Again, Satan does this in various ways. His name's the accuser. He controls and drives us with guilt and shame. He clothes himself in light, Scripture says. He captivates our minds with lies. He divides and isolates. He brews division and bitterness. He promises, lures with riches, with pleasures, with comforts. I heard somebody say this last week. It was a great line. They said, maybe perhaps it's not so much that you own your stuff, but your stuff owns you. Satan will use anything to possess us. But whatever it is, the demon is in too deep, just like it was in Jesus' day, and we find ourselves just completely possessed. It could be ideology, it could be a pleasure, numerous things. And just like, again, in Jesus' day, our cleverness, our cuteness, our think tanks, our arguments, all these things, while they have their place, are ultimately, and those are all things I love engaging in, but ultimately... They're powerless without the power of God. The demon is in too deep. Now, can, before we consider, okay, so what do we do? Thanks, Pastor. That's depressing. Uh, what are, we should pause and consider. Here's what I want to say first. I just want to pause and consider. Do, 
Do we care? Uh, notice in this passage, it all starts with the disciples, right? They go, they're unable to heal the boy, but the disciples aren't the ones pleading with Jesus, are they? The boy's father does. It's an interesting dynamic in Scripture, and I think it's revealing, and I think it goes a long way to explain, because we have this question, you know, why does God have us pray? Why doesn't he just fix everything? Why doesn't he just do it immediately? Why do we He ask us to come to him and pray? And honestly, at the end of the day, I don't know, but here's what I do see consistently in Scripture. God comes with his power when our hearts actually align with his. When our hearts align with his compassion for those around us. When we don't see people as mere obstacles or annoyances, but we see them with the same compassion that we see Jesus has here, that we see with the same kind of love for them that Jesus has here, that God has for them here. The same kind of tears that the father has for his child here. He says, when I see that in you and it matches my heart, that is when I come in power. In other words, church, the reason why oftentimes I think God puts us in places where he says, talk to this person, pray for this person, even sometimes for years, it's because he's saying, I want to do as much a work in you as them. And so here's the thing, during this pivotal season, this transitional season in Columbia, it's always a transitional season in Columbia, but it's (laughs) specifically acute transitional season. Uh, the question is, are you willing to consider to look up and check your heart and go, do I, do I care? Do I look around and I see the, de- the destructive habits perhaps or just the complete escapism and entertainment and ju- or just clinging to success? When we see it, do we just see it as something that just annoys us, that's just a different lifestyle than us, that just makes us mad? Or what, what is it? What is our response? Is it compassion? Because here's the thing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are damned to hell. You are not righteous on your own. I am not righteous on our own. We are not righteous on our own. The only salvation that comes is through the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. All of us would be enslaved and possessed just like this, but Jesus came down from heaven in order to lift us up. (laughs) Because he brings perfect righteousness and he brings compassion and demonstrates the love of God. So ask, here's what I would ask. Who does your heart break for? Who do you see who's possessed in that sense of not knowing Christ, but possessed by the things of this world, possessed ultimately by the kingdom, the prince of this world, and your heart breaks? Now, here's the thing. Our care, though, is not enough. Lastly, our concern is not enough. Lastly, we need the power of God. Taking hold of the power of God for what it is. Uh, Again, listen, God has you in this season with whoever you're going to interact with for a reason. It is not an accident. There are no accidents. God is sovereign over your interactions, and he is bringing people into your lives so that, as Paul says in Acts 17, they're reaching and finding their way towards me, just gripping at whatever they can because they're they're blind that you are the one who's to stand in there and God has placed you here to go, I know what you're looking for in your career. I know what you're looking for in the hookups. I know what you're looking for with all the money. I know what you're looking for with all the escapism, with the, with the addictions. I know what you're ultimately looking for, and it's him. 
They all just give you a little taste of it. You are where you are because God has captives he wants to set free. And again, your cleverness, the catches, your cleverness, your cuteness, your power, your ingenuity, your insights, your arguments, your coolness. I don't know if anyone uses that word anymore. Cultural savvy, it won't be enough. The demon is in too deep. But the demon is in too deep for you. Not for him. So we go to Jesus. Like what the father does when he goes to Jesus. And what we see here in this passage are three primary steps. Not to make this formulaic, but three realities here. If we were to take hold of the power of God as we go out into the world and we are to actually see God do a work in our midst, we see people come to know him. The first is we confess our unbelief. Uh, here's the thing. What we see in verse 24, starting in verse 22, the second half, the father cries out to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, you have, comp have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if, if you can all things are possible for one who believes. Now, I wonder there if he's possibly saying, is it possible for you to have compassion, not only to do something about this? And Jesus says, I have both. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Here's the thing. We have to, we have to realize, or we have to come before God and we have to confess and identify where it's like, one, a lot of times we don't even care. We don't even see. We, we don't even believe to the extent that we say maybe we're Christians. But when it comes to like, it's like we never pull back the veil and go, so of course, Satan is real. God is real. Heaven and hell are real. We have a calling right here and now. And we have to pray and say, God, help my unbelief that I don't even believe that that's true. But then also, we pray and ask God, would you help my unbelief when I think that it's completely impossible? And God goes, exactly, because it is for you, but not for me. We cry out to God and say, God, this I don't believe. And when it says repent and believe, it means repent literally means to turn from it, just to turn from that reality and then say, God, okay, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to step out into relationships and I'm going to speak, I'm going to enter, I'm going to get out of my little bubble and I'm not going to try to avoid at all costs. But then third, so you confess your unbelief, then, or sorry, second, then you contend for the captives. Look at verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, Jesus, when he entered, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some manuscripts, you have a note in your Bible for some of you, says, and fasting. When I say contend for the captives, what I mean, what Jesus says here is don't contend against people. Culture war days, here we are. The church militant is just going to strike down everyone who's an unbelievable believer, right? God calls us, this side of Christ, to put down the sword and to pick up the weapons of faith and pray for non-believers. We are not in the days of Joshua. Our Savior underwent a sword, and he now leads us into the promised land. People need to get their biblical theology straight. Jesus now calls us to pick up the weapons of faith and to contend for, not physically contend against, those who do not know him. And to have compassion and to have humility, because if it weren't for the grace of God there, we would go as well. 
And so he calls us to have that perspective, to go after people, to fall on our faces, fall on our knees, and say, God, would you please move? And here's the thing. You have people in your life where your, the tears come easily like they did for the Father in this passage. And that's where revival happens. Uh, Tim Keller was a pastor in New York who just died, I think, last May. Right before he died, I, he said this. He said, praying for a revival is not to sow literal seeds, but to sow our tears. Tears of repentance, tears of longing, tear, longing for God, for his glory, for his beauty, to show himself in the lives of his people. Who brings tears to, to your eyes? Start there. Who do you have compassion where you, you care? And here's the thing I want us to be doing throughout the fall. I want you to be praying for someone or a group of people. I want you to be writing down a, a couple of names. I want you, when you're meeting people, to have a perspective. God, is this someone who you want me to enter into their life and speak the gospel into their life? Be doing that during this season. Be praying about that. Ask for God to open your eyes and make you diligent in that to be writing down names. Some of us have the 1002 bracelets because for our, our network, Luke 1002, where, Lord, we pray for more workers of the harvest. Would you pray every day, set an alarm on your watch or on your clock for 1002 in the morning, 1002 at night, and pray when it goes off. Lord, would you send? Would you bring the harvest? God moves through prayer. And third, then, once we contend and we're praying, we confess Jesus. We share Jesus. Look at verses 25 and 27. It says, And when Jesus saw uh, that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and you deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, in his day, Jesus, of course, was standing right there, right? But now, we must speak. Now, the Spirit of Christ gives us the words to say to make Jesus known. And it's, it's actually very simple. We share, just like with the, the story of the boy, what if just in people's lives, all you did was you just shared, you said, let me tell you how Jesus raised me up. Let me tell you about where I was at and where I felt like I was controlled by all the things of this world that just wasn't working. And just share how Jesus rose you up. What Jesus does here is Jesus enters in the boy. It's like he's dead. And what does Jesus do? It's like a resurrection where he raises him up. And so whoever you're around, when you're engaging with them, be sharing, getting to that. And it can just be your, your story. It doesn't have to be like the perfect like, Bible presentation where they're like, my goodness, that diagram was amazing. Listen, your fancy diagrams, your fancy circles, your fancy statements, all those things will not in the end, if you are not in prayer, the power of God will not come. I bet the disciples had down a lot of pithy little statements. But they had down all the exact right choreography when they were talking, and they were trying to deal with this. And it didn't work. If you are willing in faith to say, God, would you just move through me in power, your power come, and I have the tears, God will use that. Listen, free people, free people. Found people, find people. This is who we are as the church. And this is a season when we lean in and we don't back off or hide. The demon is in too deep. 
It won't come out, again, through arguments, winsomeness, cleverness, alone. There's a place for all those things, but alone those will not do it. We talk a lot about those things and how to be those things at Anthem. We need to talk about this. The demon is in too deep, but it is not too deep for God. Our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our children, our parents, our brothers, our sisters. The demon is in too deep for us, but not for God. That's why Jesus came down, descending deep into the hell of Satan, and he declared, the keys are mine, this is my kingdom, these are my people, and he said, they are not yours, they are mine. But he asked you, and he asked us today, do you believe? Will you pray? Will you speak? The demon is in too deep for us, but not for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, your word, Lord, that cuts right through. Where, Lord, we just, we fall asleep. We don't see these things. We're we're unaware of them. And so, Lord, would you awaken a spirit for each of us where there are individuals in our life where we're called to speak to. Lord, would you give us the words? Would you give us a heart that desires to make you known? And Lord, would you move in power? Lord, the amazement that's in this passage, Lord, would there be much of that amazement in this city? As we see you do things that only you could do that we could never do, things that just do not make sense beyond anything we're capable of, so that people will not look and say, look at those people, their talent, or their winsomeness, or their insights, or their strategies, but they'd say it must be the power of God. Lord, would you move in that way? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.